Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. God be with us today, Lord. Give us wisdom concerning these uh, orders to warfare. Thank you so much, Lord, for the victory you have given us in Jesus Christ. Redeemed us out of the hand of our enemies. Amen. All right, we're, this is uh, Fiery Trials Bring Great Revival, number two. Mm -hmm. (sighs) And uh, this first revelation, (laughs) and only revelation, is called Precision in Prayer and Warfare over Enemies. This was a revelation given to Dana Coverstone, July of 2022, and we're going to share a part of it with you and make comments. Um, He said, after I share this, I encourage you to pray about it. I had this dream for 18 days in a row, and on the 18th day, the archer in this dream showed up, and that's when I knew the dream is either over or I'm going to learn what the dream is about. Yes, I believe it's the latter part there. It's not over. It is coming, like all dreams, almost all dreams are. So I asked the Lord if our authority over the forces of darkness will annul some of this coming judgment and got a yes. And then I asked if we have authority to annul all of this, and I got a no. And I believe we'll see that in the text. So, pray and ask for directions to exercise your authority over this dream, okay? He said, the dream started on June 15, 2022. I was standing in a shipping yard where large containers were being lifted off of the container ships by those huge cranes. And there was a sign that said, Port of Los Angeles. Well, a port is an entrance into a country. And Los Angeles means the angels. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning, of course, uh, knowledge or wisdom. And uh, we will see that uh, the Chinese Communist Party are leading a revolution to, uh, of anarchy against conservatism and Christianity. And although they have been badly wounded by the alliance, they are capable of doing small things that can cause big trouble. Um, he went on to say, I saw eight jet black containers that were set on the ground about 15 feet apart and they were pristinely clean 
with large Chinese or Oriental letters on them. These large letters were in black, and they were about five feet tall by five feet wide, and they had a brownish-black background behind them, so they stood out almost like 3D on the containers. Well, five by five is a military term meaning loud and clear. And as we will see, these events take place in broad daylight. Our enemies are not even trying to hide what they are doing any longer. There is a purpose for this distraction. I believe we'll get to this in a minute. But Dana went on to say, They were very suspicious and just set aside or apart from everything else. The black, he said, indicates some clandestine plans that are being revealed or some darkness. True. And uh, deception, I would say, being brought into this, this country. It was broad daylight, not night, and I could see a large clock tower that seemed to be suspended high above the shipping facility. It was exactly set at three o'clock in the afternoon, and when I saw this, all the eight doors of those shipping containers began to bang like someone was inside them trying to get out. There were no people outside of the containers, but I saw they began to shake, and they were banging violently. He said uh, there was a hidden agenda about to be revealed. The clock tower was showing us a sign. And uh, Jesus went to the cross at about the third hour, and it was dark on the earth for about three hours. Uh, I want to emphasize that it was bright light outside. It wasn't high noon, but you could see everything that was going on. Well, the comment about Jesus going to the cross just lets you know the, the body of Christ is going to the cross too. Okay. Suddenly the door of the first container opened and a man in military equipment rode out on a very large green dirt bike like a Kawasaki. It had saddlebags on both sides and very large knobby tires. These dirt bikes were higher caliber dirt bikes. The guy that pulled out on this motorcycle was covered in military gear. He had an AK-47 over his back, and he took his helmet off and stepped off the bike and put the kickstand down. Well, off-road bikes, he said, can go anywhere in the city or country. This is true. And that's the whole plan. And I believe this represents the ability to infiltrate any area of the country desired. Uh, and when he took his helmet off, he was revealing himself as an Oriental man. Well, the Chinese Communist Party is a deep state and are fighting to subvert and overthrow the country uh, basically for communism. Yeah, uh, he went on to say he began violently screaming towards the trucks and the shipping containers. 
He was pointing in different directions and looking back at the trucks. He was violently angry, and his face was very, very red. Well, the Chinese Communist Party has lost some battles recently to the alliance, and um, they're severely weakened, and I think this, is, this would be something they might try. And Dana went on to say, suddenly he just stopped and checked his watch. Then he put his helmet back on and got back on the motorcycle and started revving the engine. It just revs and revs and revs. He has not put it in gear, and all at once, that clock tower struck four o'clock. And there was this deep-sounding bell that rang out. The whole earth shook. Well, we do know some earthquakes are planned uh, by the deep state. We know that from our dreams and our revelations. So... Keep that in mind. They're in cooperation. I mean, the whole earth just shook so angrily, even where I was, standing in the background watching. We've got to face the facts that not just our natural enemies of America are angry, but our spiritual enemy is angry right now, and things are being revealed. I think doors are opening and things are happening. I believe we're about to see something happen that's going to shake the earth and it's going to start a, a downhill trend of things or events from here. Yes, this D-class is um, definitely going to shake the earth uh, outside of any physical earthquakes that could be part of this invasion. We have dreams where mad scientists are planning great earthquakes in the U.S. And since this is all in the daylight, it's possible that they want a distraction so that the invasion can come across the border, as we will see. We've been told that uh, the White Hats plan on intercepting the invasion and turning it around. Uh, but for some reason, this doesn't happen in this dream. Hmm. A distraction? Yeah. Then out of reach, or excuse me, then out of each of those other containers, including the one the man came out of, rode about 25 soldiers on the same kind of motorcycles with the same kind of saddlebags, and the same AK-47s across their backs. I could also see rocket-propelled grenades, lots of ammo and weapons in those saddlebags, and they were hardly able to be strapped down because they were loaded for bear. Okay, so uh, aside from the spiritual, there is a possible uh, natural application of this. 200 soldiers with this kind of weaponry could do a lot of damage in the right places, but they could also be military advisors for the invaders coming across the border and sleeper cells. And so we may see this a little bit further down here. But these weapons could also represent deceptions of words and propaganda to cause anarchy, 
since the Chinese own all the media outlets. Hmm. And when the first soldier, who had been revving his engine and giving the instructions, took off out of that port, the rest of them followed, and I could see that when they got beyond the large fence of the Los Angeles port, they took off just speeding heavily in all different directions, meaning they were independently sent to join different groups, I believe. And Dana said, now these weapons were definitely going to be used to attack, and we know the church has been under attack, and crisis pregnancy centers have been under attack, but the Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. And, he went on to say, uh, we've got people who are calling themselves Christians supporting abortions and other things uh, that God calls abominable. Uh, I believe we're about to see a greater outpouring of judgment on the house of God, which is biblical. Uh, in that sense, this could well show not just attacks on the country, but attacks on the church. Well, this is what God has told us is coming in our uh, morning prayer meetings and uh, in verses and uh, what Babylon did to the apostates using sword, famine, and pestilence. Uh, history is repeating. Okay. As, and he shares Ezekiel chapter 8, 16 through 18. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east. And they were worshiping the sun towards the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? It is a light thing to the house of the Lord that they commit abominations, which they commit here. For they have filled the land with violence and have turned again to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in wrath. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Well, okay, um, this obviously is a rebuke to the church, a judgment which is coming because the church is apostate. And then Dana said, the scene then changed and I was hearing news reports and seeing newspaper articles and reporters who were announcing deaths all over the country in both rural and metropolitan areas. The reports were about water supplies. And water systems being poisoned in various places uh, around the country. Well, we've had dreams and revelations about this too. The military is warning not to drink municipal water. They have done it uh, several times. Uh, they know there's some poisoning coming, or it's already poisoned, one or the other. I saw headlines suggesting entire communities were poisoned in various places throughout the country. 
He went on to say the reporters were telling people to drink nothing but bottled water and or water they knew was not connected to a local water supply. They were saying if you've got a well, you should be okay, but still you might want to boil it. So this poison was affecting both larger and smaller communities, but not every community. So obviously prayer can help that way too. So this was not a nationwide thing, but it was impacting a lot of communities. It was impacting the western portion of the country more than other parts of the nation, according to the reporters. They were announcing that there were National Guard units fully armed who are now watching water supplies in some of the bigger cities and parts of the nation. It was reported that thousands of people had died and that hospitals were full of heavily poisoned people getting medical treatment. FEMA centers and camps were being set up in those regions where people had been the most heavily poisoned and the water supply damaged. The emergency broadcast announcement that was running along the bottom of the TV screens and monitors stated that the boiling of water was not an effective way of making the water safe. Well, all this could be a distraction to our military to keep them from stopping the invasion that is going to come across the border. Hmm. I then saw the clock tower appear above that municipal water supply, and its hands pointed to 4.05 in the afternoon. Once again, this was occurring in broad daylight. So, we're definitely seeing some type of a literal attack but this could be a spiritual attack in the sense of what's going on with the deceptions in the media, not knowing what's happening and not knowing what we're drinking, so to speak. He went on to say the time uh, 4.05 indicates the idea that there's a countdown. First the soldiers take off, now we're seeing the poisoning of the water supply. He went on to say, spiritually speaking, this represents being careful what we drink, being careful what we put into our body, being careful what we listen to, making sure that we test every spirit and listen carefully for the Word of God in order to discern those things that are going on in our world and also that we're cautious and careful uh, what we are consuming. Well, you know, there's no way in some, some poisons, there's no way for you to detect it in the water by smell or other means. No way to detect it. It's just that you need to be in touch with the Lord, right? And you need to bless your water. Okay. And, um, after I had the 18 days of dreams, I had two short dreams, one where I saw some people watching TV monitors at airports and in homes, and they were covering their mouths. It was like what they were seeing on the TV was so terrifying 
like a 911 event that they covered their mouths and it was summertime because I saw the grass was brown from the heat. I saw on the screens of every TV in America people crying, embracing each other, and they were seemingly in shock. So fear is going to be a big weapon the enemy uses against the people. I'm sure there'll be another pandemic that is going to be terrible, far terribly worse than the last one we, we just had. Uh, in the dreams, the people who are watching the news weren't looking up, and that's the key. I believe we cannot be afraid, as everybody else is, of what they're seeing in the things that are happening in America or around the world. We've got to be looking up. Look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. If we're looking at the news and covering our mouth in horror, that means that we are not speaking because of fear. And folks, right now, the church needs to be full, fully aware of what's happening around us and not afraid. Amen. And most of all, the church needs to repent, turn back to the Word of God. They would have been armored up for this thing, but they are not. Okay. Okay, well, back to the dream. The next thing I saw was four lines of light that seemed to be coming up from the border, all the way from Texas and California in broad daylight. Uh, this could be representing that they were no longer attempting to hide their plans, and this is a planned invasion over the border. And it seemed uh, that many people were coming from the border, he said, uh, in a very organized way, and they moved north hundreds of miles with lights uh, bright enough to be seen from space. Well, as we said earlier, these lights could represent deception because these people are deceived. And as all the leftists are deceived in what they're doing to try to overthrow, and for one thing, Christianity in America. And they all stopped moving at once. And when they did, smaller light trails from within the U.S. started moving towards the four big lines of light where the movement had stopped. I think they're being joined by the CCP um, military advisors and sleeper cells. I remember George Washington's dream of the red light invasion from the east and how the angels had to come uh, down and help the Americans who were almost overcome by it. Well, this is definitely a red invasion from the east. Okay. Then suddenly the smaller lights started attacking. I could very much see this as being sleeper cells, he said. Yep. Yeah, I would say like uh, leftist anarchists, BLM, Antifa, radical Muslims, etc. More people coming and the cells getting larger and larger. 
It was like watching moths drawn to a flame, and the source lights kept uh, getting brighter and brighter as the smaller lights came in. The source light kept getting bigger and bigger, and then all four places flashed all at once, and everything went dark for a moment. And then it pulsed almost like a slow light just going on and off. Uh, well, uh, they're gathering together, obviously, to form an attack. Um, this is what happened in the movie Red Dawn. The Chinese invaders EMP'd the nation to take it over. And then he went on to say, it exploded and the light was spread hundreds of miles from the source of that explosion. Then I saw the clock tower again and it stood high above the ground and showed the time to be 4.10. Okay, I, we, now this is not literal, that timing thing, you know, but it is a series of events for sure. Um. I saw small embers of flames that were coming down around the clock, but not catching the ground on fire, although it looked like fire coming down. Well, Missy just had a dream that may have showed the embers of fire coming down out of the sky, but not catching anything on fire, just like this portion of Dana's dream. So both of these dreams seem to show the embers as being spiritual, a fire from heaven. I would say that this judgment against the church, as we will see, um, is a fire from heaven. It's been warned a long time. It is according to types and shadows in the scriptures when Babylon took down the apostate people of God. Okay, It's ordered of the Lord. Uh, but the Lord will have mercy in certain cases, and he will defend those who are righteous. So anyway, these uh, he, Dana went on to say these explosions of light were spreading out, and the flames were going hundreds of miles beyond them. I'm thinking that this is fear, because remember the mainstream media is uh, deep state to the core. And you shouldn't be listening to them, honestly, because they can't tell the truth. And Dana went on to say, there seemed to be a lot of intimidation going on during this time. It seemed like a worldly attack. And at the same time, the, tr the trails seemed to represent inroads for the enemy, spiritually speaking. So whatever these four light trails were, they were drawing other people into them. I believe it's, since it was all the way along the southern border, it was, um, it's probably the invasion coming in from the south. And people joining them. And we know, of course, that uh, they've been invited in by this leftist president. The light and explosion wanted to be seen, 
There was no hiding what was coming up that trail. These things were coming up clearly in the daylight. Now there was shock and awe for a while, but there was also fear that was projected out by this explosion. Yes, that's the main thing. They want to make it shock and awe. They want to make it fear because it confuses people and um, so on. Once again, the clock tower at 4.10 represents we're counting towards the next event. And then there was sudden silence, and it permeated the atmosphere. And I believe this is representing persecution of free speech or fear to speak out. He went on to say, I saw the clock strike 4.15, and suddenly there was this alarm going off almost like a tornado siren, a long wail was going across the entire nation. It wasn't just focused on one area. But, as he went on to say, no one was hearing the alarm. Well, they were feeling alarmed, which um, affected their ability to be rational. And um, obviously, uh, they were not acting on the alarm that that uh, like this one here which is warning them of the things to come people didn't seem to know what they heard i could hear it in the dream but nobody else seemed to hear it so that silence was almost like people not knowing what was coming next but that alarm was saying hey there's something happening Something's coming, but there were still people covering their mouths, and the explosions from the trail of whatever it was coming up from the water, and then that sudden silence, and in the background, the wail of that siren. Okay. Then the scene changed, and I saw churches of all shapes and sizes nationwide and they were surrounded by mobs of people screaming. They had placards and signs. This was more than just about the overturn of Roe v. Wade. This was more than just about liberal agendas or drag queens talking to kids in libraries. These people were chanting hostile threats that they were going to burn the churches down. Okay, well, this is something that Babylon basically did against the people of God. So, this is just a repeat of history. All of the anarchist leftist groups taking this opportunity to bring down their enemies, the Christians, right? Dana went on to say they were going to kill the Christians. There were no idle threats. They were saying, we are going to kill you. We're going to burn your church. We're going to do this or do that. Well, this is um, one way deep state Babylon destroyed the apostate people of God. And God's plan is to deliver his people from Babylonish religion and 
so that they may follow the man-child reformers into the wilderness tribulation, which is very close. Will it take burning some churches to scatter the people and cause them to look elsewhere? What about burning churches with people in them? You know, would they be feel safe in their churches? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. This is, would really put a uh, a damper on all of that. Maybe people would go looking on the internet for truth, searching out things, and so on. And they they'll probably find it somewhere besides in these dead religions. Well, they were all about 150 feet away, and some maintained a distance. There was a bit of considerable difference between the protesters and the people yelling and screaming. Inside those churches, I could hear people leading others in prayer. But no one was praying very much out loud. Well, that's what they do in those churches. They bow their head and pray quietly. Well, there was no power or authority in their prayers. It was just things like, Oh, God, you've got to help us. Oh, God, can you save us? Oh, God, look out there. People in the churches were looking out the windows and they were reporting, Hey, the crowd's getting bigger. There's more people out there. And yet at the same time, nobody inside the prayer circles were stepping up the prayer and being aggressive with it. Well, you know what James said, the double-minded man's unstable in all his ways. He is not to think that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. And these churches are not um, good at receiving answers to prayer <laughs> because they don't know how to pray and they don't know how to do spiritual warfare. So they've, been not, they've not been taught to pray with the authority of the promises of God. And they're not used to getting answers to prayer either. And this is why God wants the elect to come out from among them and seek true faith. Amen. Dana went on to say, Suddenly I saw five different churches, one in the Midwest, two in the Northeast, one in the Southeast, one in the Northwest. I saw one church in each of those areas. Okay, representing, I imagine, the larger church group in the area, okay? Well, five is the number of grace. Hmm. It appears that some churches will find grace to escape this. So, listen in. Arrows were being fired into the crowd from the roof of those churches with bow and arrows, and each of the arrows scattered the hostile crowds. So, uh, it was one church in each of those areas. It, it was um, a, uh, a cross-section of uh, Christian churches. But on top of just these five that were picked out, grace was shown. 
Arrows were being fired into the crowd from the roof of those churches with bow and arrows, and each of the arrows scattered the hostile crowds. So is this the way part of this attack can be annulled? Or is there more in this warning dream to be annulled? Okay. They hit the pavement and they scattered the protesters and they began to flee. As I watched the people scrambling, I noticed the archer on each of those five churches appeared to be the very same man firing those arrows from all five locations simultaneously with precision and care. Well, the first thing I, when I read this, I thought, this one man is Jesus. And it's Jesus manifested in a corporate body because they fired from all the churches at one time, these chosen churches at one time. Um, they're a corporate body of man-child reformers who we've been telling you is coming and are going to receive an anointing very soon who will defend what should be defended. Um, you know, Jesus pronounced the judgment on Jerusalem, and uh, he didn't defend it because they were persecutors of the saints, killers of the prophets, and so on and so forth. They were guilty. In Esther, Mordecai, meaning little man or man-child, was given authority over Haman and his army of haters of God's people, which turned the tide against them to save God's people. And this is our Purim, our Passover. Okay? And uh, Dana went on to say, these arrows were against the words of attack. Hmm. Well, let me point out this to you. Luke 10 and 18, uh, I would say through 20. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan fallen as lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. These are different legions of demons, by the way and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Nevertheless, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. So it is demons. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. So we have authority. And this is not what prayer is. Prayer is asking, okay, authority is doing what's been delegated to you to do. Okay. Dana then went on to say, I realized that the alarm had been going off this whole time, but the people in the churches had been so concerned about the crowd, they weren't hearing the alarm. Well, this whole time, I mean, the alarm going off is the prophetic warnings of all these things that are being ignored by the apostate churches who no longer believe in prophetic warnings. 
They're helpless. They haven't been taught the full gospel. And some of them that claim full gospel are not. Okay. Dana went on to say, I, I had been seeing that clock tower this entire time, and it finally stopped as the archer started walking towards me. It was the man that I have previously seen in my dreams with a quiver full of sheer white arrows. <laughs> yep. Uh, I believe this is representing the pure words of authority against the principalities and powers and rulers of this darkness. They glowed, even though it was the middle of the afternoon, and each of these arrows had an extremely sharp point. They were very effective against the enemy, right? They were just really, really cool and ornate. He then pulled from over his back this very large longbow. Well, that's obviously made for long-distance warfare, right? Because <laughs> it really doesn't matter in the spirit realm. You know, your, your commands to the demon realm uh, will come to pass. Don't matter how far away they are. And when he put it down in front of him, the bottom touched the ground and the top was about head high. It was a longbow. Then the alarm stopped. Well, I believe the church had no authority in prayer or spiritual warfare, but the man-child types throughout history have had this. And that's why these men were a corporate body on the top of these buildings that had grace, that received grace from God, okay, and they were defended. So I believe prayer and uh, spiritual warfare will defend those churches that have grace. It doesn't mean that they are mature in the Lord or that everything they teach is right, but they found grace with the Lord. And a lot of churches are not going to find grace with the Lord, as you will see. Uh, the man stood silent for a few moments, and he surveyed the area, and then he turned and was watching around the church areas, and he said, quote, There must be precision in your prayers. You need to pray very precisely, uh, not just general prayers, which rarely get answered. There must be precision in your prayers from this point forward, absolute precision, to counter the noise and the violence that will be aimed at the body, unquote. So we are to cast down the demons of anarchy, hatred, slander, railing, perversion, antichrist in general, uh, etc., who are in control of these attackers. Right. Then he said, the church must remember, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit that will help you to walk straight through this battle. This, uh, Dana said, this thing is spiritual that we are fighting. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
It's not the White House or Congress that we're fighting. It's spiritual things in darkness that have invaded this country and have deluded the minds of those around us. Amen. Then he said, There must be precision and power in your prayers. The war has arrived, and those awake are in front lines now. And you will never be able to get away or withdraw from that line. In other words, after this starts, you're going to continue. You're going to have to continue to do prayer and spiritual warfare. Life as usual won't go on. Then he said, this absolute precision is required in your prayers, unquote. The Lord just said, it's not going to stop. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. We've got to continue to stand and hold our ground and occupy until he comes. Well, okay. Think how bad it could get if we don't exercise authority over the demons. And the churches are pretty much defenseless because they haven't been taught that we are here to walk in the shoes of Jesus and exercise authority over demons. And he said, these signs will accompany them that believe in my name. They will cast out demons. So, and of course, some of these churches don't even believe in demons. So they're really <laughs> in trouble, you know. After saying this, he took a defensive position and quickly put an arrow into the bow and shot straight up in the air and just kept looking in that direction. He wasn't looking around at the crowd or the people near the churches. He just shot it straight up into the air, and that arrow never came back down. I found myself kind of watching and waiting for it to come back down, but it never did. Well, my thought on this is that the warfare of Jesus in his people who have borne fruit is against the principalities and powers in the second heaven. And beyond that, in the third heaven, their prayers go to the throne. Yeah. So, Dana said, he kept looking into the air where he shot it, and he never looked back at me. And he said, the Bible says that his word will not return void. I promise you, our prayers will not either. Our eyes need to be on him and never leaving that front line, never being distracted by the noise and the violence. Well, we have to do more than pray. Uh, and when we pray, we have to believe we have received, as Jesus said. All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe you receive them and you shall have them. So when you pray, believe you have received. Then you have authority. <laughs> we have to exercise authority for him. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus. Then he turned and delegated that authority to his disciples all the way down to us because he told them to make disciples and teach those disciples 
to uh, submit to everything that he spoke to those first disciples. So therefore, everything that Jesus spoke to those disciples was to come to us. And what we bind on earth is bound in heaven, he said. He delegated authority to us. And what we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Did Jesus get sent with authority? Of course. And he sent us with authority. I repeat, Luke ten nineteen. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Does that matter how big the enemy is? No, it doesn't. Over all the power of the enemy. You could be totally outnumbered on the ground. It makes no difference. Principalities and powers are the ones ruling these people. We have authority over all of them. And he goes on to say, And nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Well, notice, we've been given authority over all the power of the enemy. And why is, why is it that this is not being passed on? It was passed on from Jesus to the first disciples, who he told to make disciples and tell them the same thing. So how come it's not being passed on in the churches? They're defenseless, and their leaders are guilty. So we have authority to bind the enemy's power. The disciples, when they were delegated authority, didn't go back and ask Jesus to do what they were just told to do. Try this with your earthly boss and see if it doesn't get you fired. <laughs> the disciples commanded healing and demons and the curse and so on. They didn't go and ask Jesus to do this. And so it is with us. You go, your prayer is a personal time with you and God. He, he empowers you. He puts faith in you. Jesus lives in you by his word, your association with his word. He lives in you in this way. And so he is doing the work in us and through us. There's a time to pray and there's a time to act as Jesus demonstrated. Jesus got alone with the Father and he prayed. And when he went out to minister, he acted. He didn't say, Father, will you do this? One time he did that to show the people, that he was just obeying the Father. And he even said so. The one man on the top of the building had more authority than the whole church full of people that were so double-minded they couldn't do anything. And so it should be with Jesus and us. Our good confession is in Galatians 2 and 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live. But Christ liveth in me. Does he really live in you? Well, if he does, then he can do the same thing through your you as a body as he did through his first body. And in fact, he said, greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith which is in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So God's plan was always for Jesus to be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That's the whole point. 
Jesus in his corporate body would do the same thing he did in his first body. And he will do it in all those who believe. That just lets you know how many are not believing. And all they got to do is read their Bible. He shot that arrow straight up into heaven, Dana said, and looking up, he was demonstrating to us how we do warfare. We keep our eyes on him. Our hands and our fingers have been prepared for battle and through this spiritual war. God is working. Well, notice the authority of those who believe God's word and work for the Lord. They become the body of Christ. Who lives in the body of Christ? Jesus. Well, then let him live. Let him do what he always does. Psalm 18, 31 through 40. For who is God save the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? The God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hind's feet and setteth me on my high places, like on top of the church. <laughs> he teacheth my hands to war so that mine arms do bend a bow of brass. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation. Nothing shall in any wise hurt me. And thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I will pursue mine enemies and overtake them. Neither will I turn again until they are consumed. I will smite them through so that they shall not be able to rise. They shall fall under my feet. For thou hast girded me with strength unto the battle. Thou hast subdued under me those that rose up against me. Thou hast also made mine enemies turn their backs unto me, that I might cut off them that hate me. And so it shall be. And Dana went on to say, God's calling the church to pray like it's never prayed before. Again, it's not just prayer to God for the situation. It is acting in God's orders, right? Okay, God's calling the church to pray like it's never prayed before, with passion, courage, intensity, fire, fervor, urgency, and with precision. He said, remember to be precise, as it matters more than ever now. Our prayers will not return void. Amen. In 2 Kings 6, 15-17, it says, When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. That's the Lord's army. <laughs> 
And so uh, Dana said, I will gladly stand in my position as a watchman, and I will call the church to repentance. I will call the church to prayer. I will call the church to be stronger. And I will call men and women of God to seek the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit more than ever, uh, and more than ever we've ever needed it before. Well, that's the truth. Everybody is supposed to be filled with the Spirit according to the manifestations in the book of Acts. Everybody. If you're going out without the power of the Spirit, guess what? You're going to be met by an enemy that you can't conquer. Now, in the natural world, we need supernatural power, he says here working in us, with us, and through us, and in every aspect of our lives. Yes. He told us we're on the front line. There's no going back. There's no surrender and no retreat. We're going to remain on that front line. Well, amen. I agree 100%. Well, Father, uh, thank you for this warning. We, uh, we pray that the saints out there will discern and decide what it is that they are to exercise their authority over in the name of Jesus. And thank you that you, according to Luke chapter 1, have redeemed us out of the hand of our enemies. That's part of our redemption. So we stand on that, Lord, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all right. Michael is going to come to and share a word with you. And we just ask, Father, that you would bless Michael and the brethren that are joining him and uh, pour out your spirit there, too, and uh, the power of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good night, saints. Bless you. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Got a Good, fine day out there today. Let's go to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you so much, Father, that you have given us the means and the wherewithal to intervene and intercede for our brothers and sisters and our family members and all those that uh, you have placed in our hearts to pray for, Father. And I thank you, Father, for giving us the uh, wherewithal, the, the desire to bring them into prayer up to you, Lord, because we are the only things that they have that would bring life from you to them. And we praise you for it, Father. We thank you, Lord, for a great message today that would bring people back to the closet, their prayer closet, to pray and intercede for the people around them. And we praise you, Father. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful gift of prayer that you have placed in our hearts to, to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's what I want to talk about, what prayer is. And this is from E.W. Kenyon. Prayer is our need crying out for help. Prayer is the voice of faith to the Father. Prayer is born then of the sense of need and the assurance that the need will be met. 
Unbelief can't pray. It can only utter words. Prayer is the living word in lips of faith. It's holding his word up to him in prayer like a mirror. He sees himself in his word. He said it. You're asking him to do it. He promised, and you hold that promise up to him in prayer. You see, God and his word are one, just as he and Jesus are one. He honored his word by calling his son the word. His son, then, and the word are one. He has with the son and in the son. So he is in the word and with the word today. When we quote the word, we quote him. When we rest on the word, we rest on him. His word is my contact with him. His word in the lips of faith is he himself speaking. Then we are speaking his word back to him. And we hold his word as a bank holds our note. Just as we have collateral to make the note good, God has the ability to make his word good. So prayer then is facing God with man's needs with his promise to meet those needs. He taught us to pray. <clears throat> he taught us to trust his word. Prayer is a part of God's program for us. He encourages us to act on his word. He is one with us in this prayer life. And it's his way of saving, healing, and blessing men. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, said men ought always to pray and not faint. Now, here's two striking translations. Men ought always to pray and not turn out badly, or men ought always to pray and not cave in. You see, prayer means vital contact with the Father. We are near enough to him to breathe in his very presence. Prayer means that we have come boldly into the throne room and are standing in his presence. It's more than bringing him on the scene. It's going into the presence of the Father and Jesus in an executive meeting, laying our knees before them and making our requisitions for ability, for grace, healing for someone or victory for someone or for financial needs. Whatever that need may be, we are making a demand upon him. One day when the crowd was pressing around the master, Jesus said, someone touch me. And they said, master, the multitude press thee, press thee and crush thee. But he answered, no, someone has made a demand upon my ability. That's the 20th century translation of the Bible. That is a beautiful translation, and it is so suggestive. There cannot be any touching of the master without the master knowing it. When need touches him, it makes a demand upon his ability to meet that need, and prayer is the way in which we touch him. Prayer keeps man in close contact with the Father and with the Word. It is a constant communion with the Father, and it enriches one spiritually. It illumines the Word and illumines the mind, and it freshens and heals the body. And a strange feature about this prayer life is that it reaches to the uttermost parts of the earth. When I pray for a man in London or in Africa, my spirit can send to him through the Father 
the blessing that he needs today. It is the original wireless method. It is the original radio means of communication. I speak here, and they are instantly blessed there. What a ministry. Glory to God. Your spirit is contacting the Father. Your spirit is reaching other human spirits through the Father. Paul said, my spirit and the Lord Jesus will be with you in your deliberations. That doesn't seem credible. Sense knowledge can't grasp this. It's in the realm of the recreated spirit. And we become so utterly one with him. We become so utterly ruled and governed by the word and by the Holy Spirit that we become masters of demons and of their work. We cast out demons with the word. We pray for sick folks and the diseases leave them. Weakness is destroyed by the strength of God. The very life of God flows out through our lips. Now, do you remember John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, where Jesus said this? He said, He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. The 20th century Bible translation says, shall gush torrents of living water. Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and how from our inner life of prayer, there gushes forth a torrent of the very life of God that speeds on its way to that one who is in need. No one knows about the fullness of this. We are in the very infancy of this prayer life. <clears throat> Listen, electricity has made the wireless and the radio realities. Electricity is God's life in the mechanical world. Will that life in the mechanical world be stronger, more efficacious than his nature in our spirits? I don't believe it. I know that our prayers bring the very presence of God upon men in any part of the world. You see, this is cooperating with him. God through you is ruling the demons and evil forces all over the world. And you become his voice in that name. And the word really becomes the sword of the spirit and it is waging a war against demoniacal forces who rule men. His word through your lips dominates these world forces. They don't know it, but they feel cramped, bound, hindered, conquered. Jesus said, in my name, you shall cast out demons. What that means is rule them, govern them. God through you then can sway the nations. And now you can understand 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Laboring together with him. How? <clears throat> through this marvelous prayer life. You have entered the holy priesthood in your prayer life. And you can be God's voice, his spokesman, his ambassador, his under ruler in Jesus' name through the word in your lips. You become God's will toward a Satan-ruled world. You're taking Jesus' place. You're acting in his stead. And what's more, God is set free among men.
You remember that God gave to Adam dominion over all the universe. And that dominion was restored to us through Jesus. But it's no, it is of no value to us unless we, the Jesus men, use that authority in his name. That authority was given to an individual called Adam. Now the authority is given to us as believers in the name. Jesus exercised that dominion. He ruled the sea. He ruled the fish. And he ruled the, whole, uh, the human body. He makes legs grow where they had been amputated. He fed the multitudes. And Jesus didn't exercise any authority or ability that is not latent in his name today. And someday there's going to arise a people who will take Jesus' place and bless humanity as Jesus blessed them in dear old Galilee. Did not Jesus say in Matthew 28, 18 and 20 through 20, all authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples, not converts, but students of the word of all nations. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of this age. He's with us in the word, that living word. He is with us in his name. He is with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we join forces with him in this prayer life. That all authority was given to him as the head of the church. And it is for the church to use. The authority that is in his name is in your lips. You let that authority loose. You give it liberty and it blesses men. He has made us sons. He has given us the name. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He has restored all that Adam lost and more. We folks are Satan's rulers. We are masters of demons and laws that sin brought into being. Why did he redeem us? Why make us new creations? Why make us righteous? And why dwell in us? Why give us the name? Why say that in Jesus' name we could cast out demons? What did he expect us to do after making us all this? Just to be good, neutral sons who never face the enemy, who simply read the word but never act on it? who don't take our redemption and new creation seriously? Is he mocking us? Is his word like dry clouds in a drought? Is Satan invincible? Must we yield to Satan's dominion and Satan rule circumstances? Must we say that tanks, planes, and bombs are to rule the world, or is God still living and where we tied up with him? Listen, I can feel God's question here. He's saying to me, is my redemption and new creation as real as taxes? Does it mean anything? Listen, we must face this issue. We are surrounded by demoniacal forces that are dominating the human on earth. And if the church has an authority over these, then no one has. But the church has. And prayer is our method and mode of dominating these diabolical forces that are wrecking civilization. Every one of us has a place in the prayer life. God has no unused members. 
There isn't a useless member in the physical body, and neither is there in the spiritual body of Christ. God has planned with divine wisdom the body of Christ. And the moment that you're born into that body, you have your place in which to function. And if anyone thinks that because of lack of training or for lack of this or that, he hadn't a place, he's deluded by the enemy. You have a place. With that place comes responsibility, and with responsibility comes a reward or a demerit. And if you don't take your place in the family of God in the church and begin to function, the body of Christ is weakened because of it. <clears throat> Some uh, have the idea that their special vocation is to criticize others because they're not doing more. Folks, the Holy Spirit is the only one who has that position. You have no right to set yourself up as a critic. Your business is to find your place and fill it. And until you do, you're going to pay the price. And I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, that the price you pay for staying out of the will of God is expensive. And you may pay it in sickness, in loss of money, or in unhappiness with your loved ones, for you can't be the protected one and the cared for one as long as you're standing outside of the Lord's will for you. So take your place, give yourself the meditation, prayer, and study of the word. And don't allow anything to stand in the way of your finding your place. Life will not mean much to you outside of God's will. And the big thing of life is to be in the will of the Father. What well, you say you were never called to give your life to prayer. No, you may not have been set apart by the Spirit for that special ministry, but I think it would be wise for you to spend enough time in prayer to get acquainted with the Father. Glory to God. Luke 18 and 1, they ought always to pray and not to faint. And there's only two ways of getting acquainted. Through the Word and by prayer. And if you don't take time to pray, you're losing out. You can't say that you have no responsibility in the prayer life, for you have. To see a need is to have a call to prayer. There are people who will be utterly lost unless you take your place, unless you do your part. Men will cry against you through eternity. You can't plead that you have too much work to do. You can pray while you work. And you can't put up the plea that you don't know how. You can learn if you wish for you to disobey the prayer call is for you to, to, to disobey the call of your Father. The prayer responsibility today is the most, most important thing of our lives. And did you ever realize that there are men and women who are defeated and are breaking down into their businesses, their home and spiritual life because we haven't prayed? Now let me change it just a minute. Because you haven't prayed. You have been occupied with your pleasures and your dreams and men and women staggering under the burdens you should have carried are breaking down. Oh, God have mercy on us. And as you listen to this, do not listen simply to awaken you for the moment, but let prayer become like your eating or your business or your home. And if you're a mother or a wife and live at home, there are certain duties which you perform every day for your family. The greatest duty that you will ever perform for your family will be the prayer duty. 
It may be that it is no longer a privilege. You have thrown the privilege away. You have ignored it. And it has now become a stern duty. You have to go back to your prayer closet and begin anew your fellowship with him. Do it for the sake of your family, the boys and girls, for the sake of your home and church, and God will honor you. Children are growing up in Christian homes without the restraining power of God over their lives. And the reason is apparent. Mothers and fathers have failed in their responsibilities in the prayer life. And I call on you men and women who yourselves are to blame for the crime and the lawlessness of the youth of this generation to go and ask his forgiveness and to take up your responsibilities now. Way back yonder in the garden, the first man lived in the presence of the creator, the Lord God. He had no sense of unfitness or need of fitness. He was like a child who climbs up into his father's arm. The child has no sense of fear, no sense of need, for he belongs. And because he belongs, he takes his place. He takes liberties. But when the great blunder was made and Adam in a foolish moment sold out his vast, <coughs> excuse me, his vast privileges and rights to an enemy, he was driven away from the presence and a flaming sword was at the gateway to keep him out. That garden of desire with this tree of life was known to all the people and for thousands of years until the flood came and yet no one could get into the presence of God. Then the Lord separated Adam, Abraham and cut the covenant with him, giving a promise of the Messiah to come through him. His descendants were also given a law and a priesthood, and they cut the covenant with the Lord through the priests. God dwelt in their midst in the Holy of Holies. No one could approach him unless he was covered by a cloud of incense and had in his hand a basin of blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat. And that was only to be done once a year by the appointed priest. Israel was a servant. The unapproachable presence was in the Holy of Holies. The heart of man was just as hungry after God as it had been the day that Adam was driven out of the garden. The heart hunger of man has given us all the religions of the old world, all the religions of the East. And it has also given us all our modern philosophical and metaphysical religions. Man's heart hunger is one of his most outstanding features, a very badge of the human. But you mustn't think for a moment that the hunger is all on one side. God's child-hungry and love-hungry heart created a universe, put in the center of it a world to be a home for his man, and he created man after his own image and likeness, an eternal being. And you know how that man failed him? All down through human history is the trail of man's hunger and of God's outreaching toward that spirit-hungry man until the man, Jesus, came. The incarnation of Jesus is the masterstroke of love. It was God's intrusion into the sense realm where man began to live when driven from the garden. God unveiled himself to the senses of the Jewish nation. They had no spiritual appreciation because they were spiritually dead. 
Jesus in his earth walk revealed to the men of the senses who surrounded him a strange, a phenomenal thing. He talked with God Almighty, the God of the Jews, with a sense of intimacy that they couldn't understand. And finally, he called their God his father. To them, that was blasphemy. And they stoned him for it. They hounded him until finally they took him before Pontius Pilate and accused him, saying he makes God his father. That's blasphemy. And he ought to die. Jesus paid the price of confessing God as his father. But before he did that, one day he said, as recorded in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I remembered that Acts 9-2 is the story of Paul's being sent to Damascus with authority to, to arrest any that he found who were of the way. And then in Acts 19 and 9, it says, but when some were hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, then in Acts 19.23. And about that time, there arose no small stir concerning the way. Acts 18.26 tells the story of how Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, a disciple of John the Baptist, Baptist, who had not yet heard of Jesus, that they expounded unto him the way of God. And that same thought is brought out again in Acts 22 and 4. I persecuted this way unto the death. Paul here is standing before the people of Jerusalem telling how he had persecuted the way. And Paul is again defending himself in Acts 24 and 14. But this I confess unto thee that after the way which they call a sect, so, so survived the God of our fathers. Now, these scriptures were puzzling. Why did he call it the way? The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holy place has not yet been made manifest, while the first tabernacle is yet standing, it says in Hebrews 9 and 8. Now, that began to throw a light on what the way is, and what it is is into the holy of holies. But Hebrews 10, 19, 20 clears it up. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Now we can understand it. The new way that Paul preached was the way into God's presence. Way back yonder, Adam lost the way. Jesus came to point it out. He said, I am the way, I am reality, and I am the new kind of life. Now, in Hebrews 4 and 16, he tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace. That means to come boldly into the holy of holies, to come with freedom <clears throat> into the very presence of God. And now our hearts can understand Mark chapter 15 and verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Josephus tells us that that wonderful veil was four inches thick, 15 feet square, made of the finest dyed linen, inwrought with threads of gold. It shielded the Holy of Holies so that no one could enter but the high priest. And he but once a year 
in a cloud of incense with a bowl of blood to make the yearly atonement for the nation. Now an angel has come, and that curtain is rent, not from the bottom, but from the top, showing that God has been there and ripped that curtain apart, throwing the Holy of Holies open, not to the higher priest only, but to everyone whom the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed. In other words, God the Father is no longer shut in alone. He can be approached. He can be met. But that's not all. Try to imagine yourself, a Jew, back yonder under that first covenant, and you know that no Jew could approach God and live. Nadab and Abihu were struck dead upon the portals when they attempted to go into God's presence uninvited. And it was upon that great festival day when the priesthood had just been set apart by Moses. Aaron's two beautiful sons lay dead. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. And from that day, no man ever attempted to enter the Holy of Holies except the king. And he was struck with leprosy as he entered the holy place attempting to go into the Holy of Holies. And he lived in a leper house the rest of his life. And for anyone to touch the Ark of the Covenant meant death, as it did to David's friend, who dared to put his hand up to steady it when the oxen had jarred the vehicle that broke it, that bore it. Now Jesus said, I am going to be the way into the presence of the Father. Men are going to be able to enter into his presence. Can't you see what that would mean to the prayer life? Now, here's the secret to prayer. We have utterly failed to grasp the significance of the heart hunger of the Father. He longs for our companionship, folks. John 14, 23 gives us an illustration. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Does your heart grasp it? Jesus said, the Father and I will come and make our home with you. He's no longer in the Holy of Holies. The sin problem has been settled. Man has received eternal life, has become a very child. And now his great heart of love says, I want to come and make my home with you. Can you see what lies back of this? There has been a restored righteousness. Man has become righteous. He can stand in the Father's presence without the sense of guilt, condemnation, or inferiority. And on the basis of this righteousness, man has fellowship. This is the object, the heart reason for the entire redemptive program. What would relationship mean without fellowship? God could make man his son, but if that son didn't have fellowship with the Father, then there's no joy for the heart of either. Fellowship really means drinking out of the same cup. It's like our old-fashioned communion table where the pastor elders passed a cup and each one of us took a sip of the wine. And that was a type of communion. Now the Father has called us into communion with his Son. We drink together. And can't you hear him say in Revelation 3 and 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will drink with him. 
Now, what does that mean to us? It means that the last barrier between the father and the children has been put away. We may come into his presence now with the same freedom that Jesus had. And now we can see what prayer can mean. It isn't the old idea of getting on our knees and crying and begging. It's a son coming unto the father's presence for one of our brethren who has been injured or for one who, for some reason, cannot come and make his appeal personally. We come on his behalf and ask for a blessing. Or it may be that we're taking up the need of the great unsaved world. We stand there in fullness of fellowship and fullness of joy to get a portion for another. This is entering by the new and living way. This is coming boldly to the throne of grace. This is fellowshipping the Father. The Father. This is visiting with him. It is not coming into his presence as the Jews came into his presence of the Lord or as a sinner would approach, but we're coming as sons and daughters. We're taking our place, folks. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 3 through 5 gives us a picture of our holy priesthood. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious unto whom coming a living stone rejected indeed of men, but with God elect precious. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's our holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Father through Jesus Christ. That's our daily worship, our daily fellowship with him. We always come to our Father in the name of His beloved Son. We come with thanksgiving. We come with worship. We come with love. And we bring the fruit of lips. Would that our hearts could understand what this means. Our words are the fruit of the vine. It says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. Jesus said that. And here is lip fruit our word from which the wine of life can be made. How does it touch our hearts to think that he drinks of the fruit of our lips? Jesus said, I am that living water. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 makes us know as we never did the holy privilege of speech. Through him, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of lips which make confession to his name. Now we can understand what it means to come into his presence. You come with your petitions. You come with your heartaches. You come with your burden. And he partakes of the fruit of your lips. Oh, how priceless are your words to him. The rent veil, the tender heart invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace all means something to us now. We're coming in through the living way that Jesus opened by his great sacrifice, by his victory over the adversary that made our new birth possible and our standing as sons a reality. Ours is a twofold priesthood. We're not only a holy priesthood, but we are a royal priesthood. And that's pictured in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. But ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, that you may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were no people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And this is our public ministry. Whether it be as a layman or a preacher, we're showing forth in our daily walk, in our conversations, the fruits of this royal priesthood. You see, we belong to the throne. We belong to royalty. And we're showing forth his excellencies. We are advertising his love, his grace, and his long-suffering. We are advertising eternal life, his very nature. We belong to royalty. And is it any wonder that we have access to the throne? Is it any wonder that we can come boldly to the throne of grace? We're walking up the new and living way. You know, prayer should be as natural as breathing and as enjoyable as eating. Prayer should be as unconscious as our communication with each other. And it should not be the child of need, but should be based on a spiritual fellowship with the Father and with the Master, so that our needs are His needs. For we're not our own. We're a part of Him. Our body is not our own. The property we control is not our own. Our abilities are not our own. They are all his. And so we're laboring together with him. What we have considered personal needs are really his needs. The work that we are doing in his work. So that prayer is not what we have thought it was. But it is a fellowship. It's a sharing. It's a community interest. We are one in this, just as the vine and the branch are one. The branch cannot bear fruit alone, and the vine cannot bear fruit without the branch. So prayer is simply talking it over with him, getting his views, getting his will, his plans, and our carrying out those plans with his grace, ability, and wisdom. You know, habits are children of our choice. We are what we make ourselves. This prayer habit will be born of your own will. This habit is hard to form for most people. And it ought to never be a duty. For just as we do not enjoy those who visit us because it is their duty, so it is with the Father. We want those who love us to come because they can't help it. Prayer is a visit with our Father. We should think of it as a rare opportunity. Folks, there is no denying that the lack of prayer is the bane of the individual member of the body of Christ. Jesus was a man of prayer. He taught prayer, not as a slavish duty, but as a glorious privilege. I often wondered why he needed to pray. He took his human place and lived the human life. I have a conviction that he didn't draw upon the secret resources that belong to him more than it is possible for us who live and walk in his name. Jesus's ministry and healing illustrated what our prayer life might do for us. He didn't exercise his divine prerogative during his three years ministry any more than any child of God may exercise him. He had a human body. He had the limitations that go with the incarnation. The believer 
is a new creation, created in Christ Jesus. He is brought into the family of God. He is an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He is a child of God. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in his body. Plus this, Jesus has given him the power of attorney to use his name. And the more that you study the life of Jesus, I'm convinced that he didn't exercise divine power in excess of what every intelligent child of God possesses today. The difference is that Jesus knew what belonged to him and Jesus used his rights. We don't know what belongs to us. And not knowing what is ours, we cannot use our rights. When Jesus cast out demons, he used authority that he has delegated to the church. He said, in my name, you shall cast out demons. The forces of hell could not touch him or injure him. He was simply using the divine ability that is delegated to us. He said, you shall take up serpents and they shall not injure you. The poison of vipers has no power over the Christian body who knows his place in Christ. The apostle Paul loosened the deadly fangs of a viper that had fastened itself into his hand. And he shook the thing off without injury. Paul simply illustrated what Jesus had promised. Now let me state it again. I am convinced that intelligent children of the Lord could walk in the same life and power and divine liberty as Jesus walked if they understood their privileges. He said, if you should drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm you. Poison could not be administered to the Lord Jesus and take effect. And it can't be administered to the body of Christ and take effect if the members of that body walk in the knowledge and liberty of the sons of God. Folks, this is not extreme. It's simply walking in the realm of life. We've been translated out of the realm of darkness. That is the kingdom of weakness, darkness, and ignorance. And we have been translated into the kingdom of of the son of his love, which is the realm of wealth, of life, a light, joy, a peace, and of faith. Let me say it again. Jesus in his earth walk as the incarnate son of God, beginning with his baptism, lived exactly as every child of God should live today. God wasn't any more his father than he is ours. He said, the father loves you even as he loves me. He was the son of God. You are a son of God. He was deity and you are partaker of the divine nature and that's deity. He had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The difference is that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit right away in a sense of which we have never yet learned. He took advantage of the God life within him in a way that we have never yet been able to take advantage of the God life within us. But you say, Jesus is not mortal as we are. That's true. But by faith, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Our body shall not have dominion over us as we walk in the realm of God. And again, Paul says that our bodies are dead have lost their mortal effectiveness in reigning over our spirits. 
And I believe that God planned that we should walk in the fullness of the divine life, that we should dare to take our position as sons and daughters of God, and that the hour is coming before the Lord's return in which a remnant of the body will rise and walk before God in the fullness of the new creation life. Disease will not be able to lay hold upon us. Ignorance and fear will be banished because the wisdom that comes from above that is in Jesus will lead us into the full dream, ambitions, and purpose of our Father. Now, I want you to notice that God has made Jesus to be our redemption. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in whom we have our redemption. First Corinthians 1.30 declares that he is our redemption. Do you dare to measure that? Do you dare to set limits on that? The limits of that redemption are the limits of Jesus. He was made unto us wisdom from God. The limits of that wisdom are the limits of the eternal Son of God. He has made unto us sanctification. And the limits of that sanctification are the limits of Jesus. He is our life. And the limits of that life are the limits of the life of the Son of God. You see... <clears throat> Our feeble reasoning has pushed faith out of the arena. The devil can combat successfully against our reason, but if faith gets reason's place, Satan is whipped. The great body of the most advanced Bible teachers today are held in the bondage of sense knowledge. Their interpretations are often evasions, because of the opinions of men, they dare not take their real place. And consequently, the word of God has little effect. So let us humbly and fearlessly, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, take our place. If we are new creations created in Christ Jesus, let us ask the Father to set the limits of that new creation, instead of allowing theologians to do it. Faith will lead you where reason cannot walk. Reason has never been a mountain climber. Faith, like a mountain sheep, can scale the loftiest mountain peaks without fear. Now, I offer this as a subject for meditation and not controversy. I offer this as a contribution after years of heart searching, of outreaching after the bigger, fuller life in Christ. And I know it's not in the realm of reason, but I know it is where faith walks. and God is challenging us in these last days to get the light and the knowledge that will fit us for the closing of this dispensation. The message that John Wesley brought was truth, but it was only part of the truth. Calvin had only a little of the light, and there have been revelations continually from the word during these hundreds of years and don't you think it's time that we passed out of this swaddling closed period into the stature of the perfect man in Christ Jesus, glory to God? So let us dare to climb the heights of God. And let us say without fear, I am what he says I am. He is in me what he says he is. I can do with his ability in me what he says I can. And this makes life big and rich. This makes us worthwhile to him. And this will make us partners with him. We'll be in that prized inner circle with him, one of the trusted ones. <clears throat> when he has a difficult mission, he'll call on us. 
You see, he will find it easy to reach us as we constantly visit him. So take your place. Enjoy your rights. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 of the Moffat translation says, Hold your ground. Tighten the shield of truth about you. Wear integrity as your coat of mail, having your feet shod with the stability of the gospel of peace. Above all, take faith as your shield to enable you to quench the fiery-tipped darts flung by the evil one. Put on salvation as your helmet. Take the spirit as your sword. And that's the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all manner of praying and, and entreaty. Be alive to that. Attend to it unceasingly. <clears throat> and you'll notice by this translation that the object of the Christian soldier's coat of mail or armor is that he may enter the prayer fight. Preaching and personal work are God-honored and blessed vocations or ministry, but prayer is the foundation of it all. A man might preach with the eloquence of a beecher and be the most skilled of diplomats as a soul winner, but he'll fall short of his ministry in both fields if he isn't backed up by the prayer life. The failure of all Christian enterprises is a prayer, prayer failure. Prayer alone gives success. And there are many different kinds of prayer. There is the simple petition, lifting its sentences in Jesus' name to the heart of love. There is persistent, tenacious prayer that will not yield until the answer comes. There is prevailing prayer that overcomes every obstacle that finally lands the answer in the harbor of peace. There is battle prayer with its fears and agony, its intense yearning. There is the quiet prayer of faith whose voice is never lifted above a whisper, but whose persistent faith shakes the very throne of heaven. There is prayer without ceasing that seems to perfume every act of the persistent prayer. Then there is the unconscious prayer attitude. Paul says, by the Spirit, praying with all kinds of prayer, how desperately the nation needs it and how desperately the church needs it. Nothing can take the place of prayer. And every believer should go into the school of prayer with Christ and actually learn the secret of prayer, the precious ministry of intercession. The prayer of intercession is the prayer for another, not for self. It is the prayer that passes out from your domain, your realm, into the realm of another. Jesus ever lives to make intercession at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit in us oftentimes makes intercession that cannot be uttered in words. And oftentimes we are depressed, we can't understand it, or see any reason for it. It is the Holy Spirit in agony reaching through us to the Father. If our spirits were only fruitful, perhaps we could understand the language and the agony of the Spirit in His mighty outreaching toward the throne of grace. If our lives were only more perfectly under His sway, He might be able to breathe His passion through our unconscious faculties in His mighty agony for lost men and women. Oftentimes our spirits are dull and he cannot communicate his passion <clears throat> and yearning through them to our minds, so it becomes unintelligible agony, groanings that cannot be uttered. Now I suppose this is the reason 
why certain men and women are led to become the prayer channels for a whole congregation. So few of us in our busy lives take time to pray that the Spirit searches through the congregation for the willing hearts that will deny themselves some of the common pleasures and will be first in the line of prayer instead of last. On these willing hearts rolls the burden of the entire church. Praise God. Thank God that in our church are found those who are willing to set aside whole nights of prayer who will leave the joy of visiting and loved ones and hide away alone with him to take our burdens and yours that we have in some way failed to roll on the Lord. They encompass our Jericho with their persistent intercession, and it's a pity that more of us do not force ourselves into a life of prayer. We have the time. We use it in useless talk or careless reading. While the Spirit is searching for an outlet, he must pass us by because we're not ready. And I beseech you not to talk about it anymore or plan when you will do it, but begin it now. Force yourself into prayer life, regardless of how you feel. Drive yourself to prayer. You will be amazed how halting and stumbling will be your first attempts. You have been rated, perhaps, as an unusual Christian worker in the church. Men look upon you as an outstanding Christian, but if they know that in behind your public profession there's an empty closet or an unused prayer room, they would be amazed. If you live with the Lord in secret, you will be able to pray with great freedom in public. Unconsciously, we call upon the people to pray who are on prayer, praying terms with the Lord, and seldom will a spiritual mind reach out to an unspiritual life for help. It is only when we are clutching at straws that we do it. You see, prayer has several elements. It brings you into personal fellowship and touch with the Father and with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus. All three of the Godhead are brought into prayer life. You are praying to the Father. You are praying in the name of Jesus. You are praying through the Holy Spirit. Your prayer is based upon the word. It brings this earth heart of ours into contact with the heavenly center of all divine power and activity. You can't spend any length of time in prayer without being affected by it. The quietness, the unshaken faith, the deep unsounded peace that pervades the Godhead will overflow into the prayer's life said an anxious and nervous mother. You will have to forgive me, children, but I forgot to visit the master this morning, and so I lack his quietness and his strength. Many of us can make that confession, that our irritability, weaknesses, and lack of spiritual insight comes from not sitting in the presence of the master. One cannot spend an hour in conscious communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the Word without carrying away from that harvest, that trysting place, the fragrance that fills the atmosphere. There is a heavenly fragrance about Jesus that lingers with the prayers. And they are slow to speak, they are slow to judge, they are quick to love and quick to help. There is a holy calmness about their lives that ch challenges the restless ones. They crave that quietness of spirit. Again, we cannot spend time with them without partaking 
of their stability and their unshakableness. One who is easily disturbed and who in the jolts of life is unseated will find a new strength and steadiness that will make him a blessing to the world by spending just a little time with the rock of our strength. You see, a few moments with him tunes us up, fills the battery, adjusts the carburetor, and makes it easy for us to face life's uneven conditions. It gives us poise and holy dignity in our contact. Faith makes us an intelligent victor. Faith makes mountains and difficulties take their true position. You can't sit with the God of all faith and all love for one half hour each day without unconsciously breathing in the faith of God. What would it mean to you if Jesus should come into your home as he came into the home of Mary and Martha? You would take time to visit with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. John fourteen twenty three. You love him, invite him into your home, and then get acquainted with him. Learn to talk things over with him. He's there. Visit with him. Remember, he loves you, and he's interested in all your problems, and he'll make his word answer every question. And God will make himself real in your life and your home. Praise God forevermore. Well, I'm out of time, folks. Folks, I hope this encourages you to get into your prayer closet and pray every day for the people around you. And I know that God will bless you mightily if you do it. God bless you. We'll see you again next time, God willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. Oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall.
sea. Though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, my Lord Jesus.